For the last several months, we've been considering together the book of Galatians. This morning, we finished that study. Uh, we looked last week, the last couple of weeks, we've looked the implications of the fact that we walk by faith, not by a list of rules. And we come back again this morning to that theme, but now we're going to look very specifically at how that ought to relate or how that ought to work in our relationships with one another. So the last chapter of Galatians, chapter 6, presents advice to help us understand how people who walk according to the Spirit and not according to legalistic rules, how we ought to live, how we ought to act in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first 10 verses of chapter 6 talk about how we ought to help one another. And he begins with how we ought to help people who have fallen. In verse 1, he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. People who truly love God and neighbor, who walk by faith, face no moment more difficult than when we have to confront a brother or a sister because of a failure in their life. Anyone who is happy or content doing that doesn't understand God's love. God isn't happy doing it. God grieves over us when we go astray. He loved us enough that he sent his son because of our sin. If we have received his spirit, if we are producing his fruit in our lives, then how can we help but be saddened by the failure of someone for whom Christ died? Through years of ministry, we have been called on many times to cry with brothers or sisters from the church, with students in the seminary, even colleagues in ministry, fellow pastors, when they have fallen into sin and God has to discipline them. As we look at Paul's letters, we discover that Paul had to do that many times. And now he counsels us on how we should handle that with love and with concern for fallen people. Because of God's holiness and his justice and his reputation, we must insist that his people be holy also. But those standards must be applied with love 
and concern for one another. So in all these instructions, Paul demonstrates a balance. We see his love for people that need his help. Even when restoring a fallen brother, walking in the spirit is essential to our relationships with others. People who walk by the flesh, who produce the kind of fruit that we looked at last week that our flesh, that our efforts produce, people who walk that way look out for their own interests. They become proud. And they tear down people who fall short. People who walk by the Spirit are motivated by love, seeking the restoration of others, seeking the restoration of people who have fallen, recognizing in the process of doing that our own propensity to sin. We should help each other when someone falls. When motivated by love, there's no place for pride when we correct another. And so we must not allow ourselves to take advantage of someone else's fall for our own personal gain. He tells us that people who are called on to restore other people who are fallen should be people who are recognized for spiritual maturity. This isn't a sign for somebody who considers themselves better to attack and jump all over other people for their failures. But if people who are mature and try to help spiritually, instead of attacking as someone who's better, we recognize our own weakness. We seek restoration of the fallen and do everything we can to facilitate restoration with the Lord and with his church. Such a person will draw near to someone who's fallen with a spirit of gentleness. Paul tells us that the right person will recognize our weakness, will realize how easy it would be for us to fall into that same situation. And so we ought to try to treat fallen people with care and concern, with the same love that we would wish were demonstrated toward us if we fall. We recognize our weakness and our ability to fall. When we come face to face with someone who, who has fallen, we're tempted to react with pride. That temptation moves us toward fleshly efforts that produce the kind of fruit that the flesh produces, that ugly fruit that we looked at last week mentioned back in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. A proud attitude moves us toward the same trap that our brother or sister has fallen into. 
fleshly efforts. The type of thing that we're seeking to help correct and we fall into the trap. We ought to help fallen, a fallen brother or sister move toward restoration with a spirit of love and gentleness, not with a judgmental spirit. In verses two through five, Paul talks about a second group that we ought to seek to help. He talks about help for needy people. Verse 2, we read, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can pr take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. If I could paraphrase that, what I'd like to say is, we have plenty to keep us busy worrying about our own failures without getting hung up, focused on other people. A principle of love and support applied to fallen people is now extended in a general way to people who need help, support. When we help someone who's fallen, we ought to apply these same principles, but it goes beyond that to people who are facing a time of need and how we relate to them. Now, interestingly, when you read the section we just read, it sounds like there's a contradiction here. He begins by saying each one should bear the burden of others. And he concludes saying each one should carry his own load. So which is it? Should we carry somebody else's load or should we carry our own load? Paul wants us to help one another. But that role isn't like the Pharisees who in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said they lay burdens on people, but they don't lift a finger to do it themselves. They lay burdens on others that no one could carry. God call, instead of that attitude, God calls on us to have an attitude desiring to help other people. When they trip and fall under a burden that blocks their way, we should come alongside them, encourage them, and help them to carry the load. In that way, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is summarized in the command to love one another in John 13. When we help somebody else carry their load, it's easy for us to begin to think that we're better. We can be proud and brag. We don't have such problems. Instead of bragging, 
over someone's fall or over someone's need, we ought to examine ourselves. When we comprehend the greatness of God's grace toward us, his mercy, and our propensity to fall ourselves, we realize we have no reason to brag. But for God's grace, we'd be in a worse situation. I've often heard the quotation made when somebody crosses paths with somebody who has fallen, responding there, but for the grace of God, go I. I, I had a friend many years ago now, uh, a man that I greatly respected, successful businessman, Christian man who lived a godly life. He had his own version of that statement. He would say to us that the only difference between me and, and the drunk on the street is God, his mercy. There but for the grace of God go I. So Paul tells us rather than look down on somebody else, we ought to pay attention to carrying our own load. We have reason to ask for God's mercy on us Therefore, we ought to extend that petition to other people to ask for God's mercy on them. We have no basis to attack others, no basis to brag about what we wouldn't do. It's hard to fall in the pride trap when we realize how we have received the undeserved grace of God toward us. Gratitude to God for his grace protects us from pride. Now, the second part of his discussion about our relationship with others deals with the obligation to do good to others. Now, one of, one of the things as you immerse yourself in this chapter you realize it's all sort of interwoven. And you're never quite sure whether he's talking about somebody who's fallen, whether he's talking about somebody who's going through a difficult time, time in need, whether he's talking about a minister, somebody who preaches God's word, or whether he's talking about people in general. Because he sort of interweaves them all and tells us over and over again that we ought to be helping one another. And that's the bottom line in this whole chapter. We ought to be caring for one another. Now he's going to talk about the obligation to do good to others in verses 6 through 10. And the first group of people that he begins with, he takes that general principle that we ought to do good to others and he, apply, he applies it. Do I dare say this? He applies it to how you ought to treat me. I always hate to preach this. 
because it sounds like I'm trying to twist your arm. And I'm really not. But it is talking about people who preach or teach the word of God. And he applies this principle of doing good to others specifically to the issue of compensation for people who teach us and who provide spiritual benefits for us. So verse 6, he talks about support for teachers. He says, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. God's word frequently repeats this principle that when we receive benefit from others, we should pay them back. Our Lord taught the principle, and Paul repeats it, that people who work in a field ought to eat its fruit. Repeats that a worker is worthy of an adequate salary. Now, some people think the way I tend to think about this, that when you serve God in ministry, you ought to receive your compensation from God alone. And so the statement is made, thanks brother, may the Lord repay you, with sort of an underlying thought, because we're not going to. Now that's a critical statement. That's not normally true in my experience. But that idea doesn't conform to what scripture says. It is true, and this is the message for me, it is true that Christ warned his followers about the danger of serving God for personal gain serving God to get rich or to obtain the praise of people. And our Lord warns us, Paul warns us, <coughs> excuse me, that God's workers shouldn't serve him neither for profit nor for praise. But that doesn't relieve the church nor us as individuals of the obligation to express our gratitude with encouraging thankfulness and as he says here with all good things and the focus here clearly looks at financial response the worker deserves to receive an adequate salary. Now, now, the next section is one of those sections where the various principles come together in a statement that relates in different ways to each of them, and yet it's true of all of them. He talks about sowing to receive a valuable harvest in verses seven through nine. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
The one who sows to please his sinful nature, to please the flesh, from that nature, from the flesh, reaps destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, I want to break this down into the various areas that he's talking about in this chapter and see how that basic principle that what we reap, we sow, relates to each of these areas. We harvest what we plant. In Galatians 5 and 6, we see a two-sided coin. The law of harvest indicates the people who give should receive back according to what they've given. People who teach God's word faithfully should receive just compensation. And a good harvest awaits people who sow for the good of others. But there's a flip side to that. The other side of the coin directed people who should give the compensation to the teacher. God returns to us in accordance with what we give him. So if we give to God sparingly, we can expect to receive sparingly. A principle of farming, and, and I fearfully speak of this subject because I know nothing about farming, and yet I understand this principle, and that is you can't expect to harvest abundantly unless you plant abundantly. If you skimp on what you plant, you'll get skimpy results. That's a profound principle of farming. It's about all I know about it. People who plant more seed will normally receive a greater harvest. We harvest what we plant. But there's another principle, or another application of the principle here based on the theme of the book. Based on what we looked at last week in chapter 5. There's another way of applying this law of the harvest, which is if we give God fleshly efforts, and notice he expands on that in this passage. If we give God fleshly efforts, what do we get? We get fleshly fruit. The harvest will agree with what we plant. So if we're investing our efforts in trying to do it ourselves, like we talked about last week, the fruit is going to be the kind of fruit that we saw in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. The ugly kind of fruit that my efforts produce. We harvest what we plant. 
And the reverse of that one is what it, we saw last week as well, that if we plant in accordance with the Spirit, if He controls us and He produces His fruit, that harvest that we receive will reflect the character of God. It'll be the kind of fruit that God produces. Therefore, we shouldn't tire of doing good as the Spirit controls our life. If we conduct ourselves that way, we'll eventually see a harvest which comes from that way of living, that comes from walking by faith. Now he brings that all together in a final statement about helping one another. In verse 10, there's an exhortation to good works. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So the exhortation is to do good to all people, but especially to the people of God. We ought to be helping one another. We ought to be serving one another in love, which is the ultimate logical implication of the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. When he produces his fruit in us, it will result in us serving one another in love. So if we walk under the control of the Spirit, if he's producing his fruit in our lives, if we're walking by faith, we won't fall into the Judaizer's trap trying to pursue a bunch of legalistic rules. God's Spirit will produce His fruit so that we seek opportunities to do good to all, especially to the family of God. Now, like Paul's other letters, he concludes with words of personal expression of interest in the people to whom he's writing. And as he expresses his personal interest, again, there's a contrast between the control of the spirit and the control of the flesh. And he tells us that spirit-controlled ministry will produce concern for others. Flesh-controlled ministry is concerned about who gets the credit. And now he's going to sort of bring his argument to a conclusion, focusing on the desires, the lifestyle, the work of the Judaizers with their flesh-controlled method. And he tells us something about what they're trying to accomplish. That they're trying to get glory for themselves by creating a following. People who require them to be circumcised, Paul tells us, 
want people to look favorably on them. They want to look good. And their motivation is self-centered. In contrast to that, he speaks of his motivation and what we ought to be bragging about. And he tells us there's only one thing that we ought to be bragging about. And that's the cross. The cross is the only valid basis for our bragging. Not what we accomplish, not our performance. And so in verse 14 he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So a death has taken place here. Through the work of the cross, we have been cut off from the world. And we're no longer part of that system. We've been separated from it. And he goes on in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. And where did that new creation come from? From the cross. So he's going to brag. He's going to brag about what the cross has accomplished. It's cut us off from the world and it has made us a new creation so that only what Christ has accomplished, what Christ's work has produced, is worth bragging about. The cross produces separation from the world and produces a new creation. Therefore, we brag about the cross. In the last few verses, Paul desires God's blessing, his peace and mercy for all who affirm the truth. So the final exhortation is to end this discussion though we have continued it. But the final exhortation is to end it and to restore fellowship based not on our works, not on somebody's list of rules, but based on our identification with Christ. So verse 18, he issues a closing blessing. He wants us to understand and experience the greatness of God's grace as it's revealed in Jesus. I want to tie the whole book together this morning in a very brief summary statement, or not a statement, several statements, but a very brief summary of what the book of Galatians has been teaching us. Now, all of you have been here all the way through this. I ought to have this all memorized already. But knowing how I am, uh, it's very possible that we haven't. The basic underlying statement of the book is that if we're saved by faith, that's how we have received life. Then we ought to walk 
the same way. Not by a list of rules, but by faith as the Spirit of God works in us to produce his fruit. Now that theme is broken down into three parts that we have looked at. The first two chapters of Galatians share his personal testimony of how God has worked in his life by grace, not by him keeping the rules, but by God's grace. So chapters one and two are Paul's story. Chapters three and four explain the doctrine that if we come to Christ by faith, we walk by faith. And then chapters five and six present the practical implications of that. If it's true that we don't walk by a list of rules, we walk by faith, what does that look like? And, and in a very real way, what he says to us in these two chapters is a response to people who say, if you preach we don't walk by rules, we walk by faith, people will do whatever they want to do. And I think in chapters 5 and 6, he tells us three things about walking by faith. He tells us that walking by faith doesn't leave us free to do what we feel like doing. That's not what walking by faith is about. Secondly, he tells us walking by faith equips us to walk by the control of the Spirit. Him producing his fruit in us the Spirit of God producing fruit that only God can produce and thereby God gets glory. And finally, what we've been looking at this morning, that walking by faith results in love for God and in love for others. Now, I want you to notice something that this book does. And don't lose sight of it. Something this book does is it brings the biblical concept full circle. It brings us back to see that we don't try to keep a list of rules to somehow earn God's approval, whether it be the law or rules that the evangelical church has developed for us to live by. That's not how we please God. But when the Spirit of God is at work in our life, interestingly, when you add up the things that Paul has been saying, you realize while we don't keep a list of rules to receive God's approval, we do fulfill the summary of the law. You remember what the law, what the summary is? Jesus told us, the Old Testament told us, 
the law is summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And while we're not trying to keep a bunch of rules, we do come back to this. When the Spirit of God dwells in us, when we walk by faith, when he produces his fruit, what flows out of it is love for God and love for one another. And so while we're not trying to keep a bunch of rules, we in fact do the very thing that the law was seeking to tell us to do with all of its details, love God and love one another. That's what walking by faith is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for what we've been looking at in the book of Galatians, that we are no longer slaves. We enjoy true freedom. Freedom to walk by faith rather than by rules. Freedom to live under the control of your spirit. And true freedom to love you and to love one another. Father, as we meditate on the truth of what you've been telling us in this book, may we, may we truly enjoy our freedom. But may we demonstrate what that looks like by our love for you and for one another. Father, we pray that as people see our lives, that they will see our love for you and our love for one another. They will realize that only you can produce that and you will receive glory. Father, we pray that you would use our lives to accomplish that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.